Matthew 23, we've been looking at tough questions about the faith. And today we're going to look at one I hear quite a lot these days. So what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you are your average unchurched young American adult. For some of you, this will be pretty easy. Maybe you are one of those. For others of you, it might take a little more of a stretch. But you're, you're in your mid-20s. You weren't raised in church. Or if you were, by the time you hit 17, 18, left the house, you pretty much walked away from church too. It's not that you don't believe in God anymore. You still believe there's a God. You still believe in an afterlife. It's just you don't think about Him that often. It's not really a central part of your life. You wake up on a Sunday morning one day and you start your cup of coffee brewing. And while you do, you turn on the TV and your regularly scheduled program, the show you've been wanting to watch, has been preempted because there's been a terrorist attack. And you watch for a few minutes as they talk about yet another person who has blown up themselves and killed lots of people in the name of their God. And then you switch the channel looking for something else to watch, and you accidentally land on one of the religious stations where a slick-haired preacher looks directly into the camera and promises that if you give money to his ministry, God will give it back to you hundredfold. And you turn off the TV in disgust, and you open your laptop, and on social media, everybody's talking about the latest current events, sarcastically, of course, because that's what social media does. And the main thing they're talking about is this, uh, this politician who's been very outspoken about Christianity and about um, you know, traditional values, but he's been caught in an affair with a, a member of his staff, and now he's having to resign. And you close the laptop, and you just shake your head, and you think to yourself, what's wrong? I mean, you think back to your, to your uh, college years when you learned about the, the Inquisition and those years when the, the church tried to force people to convert through torture, and some of them they killed. You learned about the Crusades and all the holy wars in the history of Europe, all those wars fought in the name of religion, and you think, you think to yourself, I can't think of one good thing that happens as a result of organized religion. I mean, these people, they cause division and tribalism and hatred and prejudice and violence, and they just build their big gleaming sanctuaries with tax-free dollars while the rest of us just suffer. Now, if I know you, then it's my responsibility to love you. It's my responsibility to show you who Jesus is and show you there's a God who made you, that loves you, and loves you enough that he came and became a man and died in your place so that you can have the life eternal and abundant that you've always wanted. But you're not going to hear me say that. Because when you look at me, you may like me, you may not, but when you look at me, you think the worst thing about me is the fact that I'm religious, that I have faith. So how do I respond? What do I do? Let's say you and I are sitting down over coffee and the subject of, of Christianity comes up and you say to me, well, doesn't religion do more harm than good? So what do I say? I think I start by saying, well, I understand why you feel that way. And more importantly, Jesus would agree with you to a certain extent. Jesus, when Jesus, of course, was a Jew and, and 1,400 years before he was born, his people moved into the land that they currently occupy, the land we know as Israel. And at that time, it was occupied by people who practiced very primitive barbaric religions with practices like, like ritual prostitution and infant sacrifice, just abominable stuff. 
And God, through the prophets and through their teachers, try to warn them, don't be like your neighbors. Don't act like that. That's not the kind of religion I desire. In fact, I hate it. And, and yet, even so, the Jews for many centuries would, would tend toward that kind of stuff too and would be drawn aside by and influenced by their neighbors. Eventually, by the time of Jesus, they had long since overcome that because what they'd done is they'd created this intricate network of laws very, very specific rules that governed every aspect of life and essentially guaranteed that Jewish people knew how to act, how to think, how to talk, how to walk, how to spend money, how to worship. But Jesus, he didn't like that kind of religion either. And he spent much of his time, his three years of ministry, condemning and criticizing the religious leaders of his day, and they hated him for it because he was pointing out things about them that they didn't want pointed out. In in Matthew 23, Jesus is near the end of his earthly life, and he's standing in the temple courts, and he begins to speak out against the religious leaders of his people. And he starts with verses 2 and 3 and says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. How many people here have ever heard the term hypocrite before? Anybody familiar with that term? We actually owe that term to Jesus. That term uh, is a Greek term that originally referred to actors in a play. Actors in plays in the Greek world of, of, of antiquity used to wear masks because the audience sat so far away, you needed to be able to see this oversized mask and know, is this a happy person, a sad person, an evil, a good? And so Jesus took that term, hypocrite, and he applied it to a religious sense. He said, our religious leaders, the most devout followers of God in our day are actually wearing a mask. They're not really concerned with God. They're just concerned with what others think of them. But he goes on and he pronounces seven woes or seven warnings against the religious people of his day. And and here's just a sampling. Verse 23, he said, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin.'" But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. There's a lot there. But what he's saying is your, your faith in God is so shallow, you, all you care about is, is the smallest, most minute little rules, but you don't care about what's most important. You don't care about your neighbor. You don't care about truly being faithful to God and who He is and representing Him accurately before the world, you're just concerned about, well, have I given my 10% and have I gone above and beyond? And he goes on in verse 27 and says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness.'" And isn't it true that one of the dangers of religion is it gives you a sort of uh, matrix through which you can justify yourself. And you can be the meanest, most selfish, most cruel, most vindictive person on earth, but you can convince yourself that because I was in church on Sunday and because I gave an offering and because I've learned a few scriptures and because I've abstained from a few vices, I don't cuss and I don't drink, well, then I'm good. And that's so wrong. Clean on the outside, inside full of death, Jesus says. Jesus was very aware of the dangers of religion. Let's think about this for a moment. Who was it 
who condemned Jesus, his whole ministry, called him demon-possessed and a traitor to his people? Who was it who arrested Jesus and handed him over to the Roman authorities? Who was it who spit in his face as he hung on the cross? Who was it who shouted, crucify him, crucify him? It wasn't atheists. It wasn't wasn't people who were 24-hour partiers who just didn't like someone telling them a few rules. It was devoutly religious people who hated Jesus the most. So yeah, Jesus is very familiar with how dangerous religion can be. And yet, Jesus created a religion. He established a religion. He gathered around himself men and women who followed him, and he spent every hour of every day in their presence. And most of the time he spent was directly training them to take up his mantle after he was gone, to carry on his mission once he had left this world. He looked at one of them, Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, and said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And just like he gave us the term hypocrite, he also gave us the term church. Because up until that point, the Greek word ekklesia, it always meant assembly or gathering. But he took that term ekklesia, and he made it a term that meant church. He said, when my people gather together in my name, they'll be unstoppable. When my people gather together and they're led by my spirit, they'll change the world. Jesus, as he prepared to ascend into heaven, he was leaving this world for the last time until he returns again. He looked at his followers in in Matthew 28 and spoke words that we know well. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So not only did Jesus establish a religion, But as he's leaving the world, he says to them, it's not enough just to believe in me. It's not enough just to follow my commands. I want you to tell others about me. I want this to spread, and it's your job to do it. In fact, I think it's accurate to say that Jesus would evaluate us as followers of him, not based on what vices we abstain from or what good deeds we do, but are we making other disciples just like us? And I would also say, Whereas you can point to some evil things that religion has done, I would also say that if you look at recent human history, at the worst human rights violations that we've seen on earth, you look at the purges of Stalin's Russia, you look at the killing fields of Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, those are atheistic governments that hated religion, that killed millions and millions of people. You look at Nazi Germany, of course, the most famous, uh, infamous, I guess, regime of our time. And certainly they weren't Christian. They were in a Christian nation, Germany at the time, much more religious than it is now. And yet the Nazis themselves had a, had a plan to twist German Christianity to fit their own evil ideology. Think about the French Revolution. I don't know how much you know about it, but in the late 1700s, the French rose up against their aristocratic overlords and the, the abuses of the clergy and and they were justified in doing so, in my opinion. And yet, they, they believed that they should displace the church, displace religion, and, and replace it with pure reason. And it wasn't long before the terror began and the guillotine went to work and the streets of Paris ran red with blood in the name of reason. You know, the truth is, we do evil in the name of religion, but we do evil in the name of anything else. 
Will and I are watching this documentary that came on PBS about the Vietnam War. My dad fought in Vietnam. He served there the year before I was born. So I have a, a real interest in this subject. And this documentary is really good. I DVR'd it so we could kind of watch it uh, on our own pace. But one of the early episodes, they're interviewing a Marine who served in Vietnam, and he's making the argument. He says, war taught me just how evil human beings can be, how cruel, how violent we are by nature. He said, everyone thinks that the military turns boys into killers, but I'd say it's more like a finishing school. It's just finishing what's in our hearts. And we are. We're savage people. Deep down inside, there's cruelty inside of us. And yeah, we'll do evil in the name of God, but even if you took religion out of the picture, we'd still be just as violent. And you might say, okay, but, but doesn't the Bible teach racism and sexism and other forms of oppression? And if you knew specific verses that led in that direction, I would be glad to dialogue with you because I'd be glad to show you how if you read those passages in context, that's not what they mean. But since, like most unbelievers, you haven't actually read the Bible, what I would say to you is, truth be told, anyone who's culturally marginalized, anybody who's on the bottom rung of society ought to thank God in heaven that the Bible exists, even if you don't believe it's the Word of God because it's the best thing that ever happened to you. And here's what I mean by that. Think about the battle against slavery. Who, who stopped slavery? In England, slavery wasn't something that happened in the country. It happened overseas in the Caribbean. And so people of England never really saw slaves. They just got the money from the sugar plantations and it propped up their economy. And there was a small group of very de dedicated Christian people who fought against legalized slavery in England. Uh, William Wilberforce was a member of parliament, a, a politician. John Newton was a former slave ship captain who had become an Anglican priest and wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. Hannah Moore was a wealthy woman who devoted her fortune to overturning slavery and so many others like them. And they won. They won the battle and ended up inspiring American Christians to take up that cause too. And here's the funny thing. Political scientists, people who study politics, they will tell you that all politics deep down inside is self-interested. I mean, everything, you know, whether you're liberal or conservative, you're in it for yourself. You're in it for what's, what's going to benefit me and the people I care about. At least that's what they believe. And they're baffled when they look at these abolitionists because they'll say, this didn't help them at all politically. I mean, none of them were slaves. None of them were black. None of them had a personal stake in this at all. In fact, when, when England abolished slavery, it damaged their economy. William Wilberforce could have been prime minister, but because he was so intent on abolishing the slaves, it, it basically hijacked his political career. And so political scientists are baffled as to why these people were so devoted to this cause. And I can tell you why. It's because they read the Word of God that said that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. In this country, the civil rights movement that happened about a half a century ago was originally a religious revival. And when Martin Luther King spoke to white Southern Christians, the only thing he had in common with them was what he appealed to, and that was Scripture. And he said, just read the Word of God and you'll see you'll see that the way people treat each other is wrong. And it won the day. Jesus had women followers. 
In a time when no other Jewish rabbi or Greek or or Roman sage would have let a woman be in their presence that wasn't a, a, a lover or a wife, Jesus had women who followed him, who served him, who who were part of his uh, band of, of, of world changers. Paul, who many people think of as, as the stern guy uh, who never married and didn't actually like marriage. It's not true, but that's the reputation. Paul is the one who urged husbands to put their wives ahead of themselves. And this was a time, this was a time, ladies, when, when women were seen as inferior, when, when a wife was seen as a husband's property. And Paul is saying, listen, Jesus died for the church. You ought to lay down your life for your wife. The church took care of widows. The church adopted orphans. The church extended protection to children and treated children as if they mattered. Is it any wonder that the majority of early believers in Jesus were women? Why would so many thousands of women across the Roman Empire flock to Christianity if it was a religion that was against them? And then there's the argument about colonialism. So one of the arguments that people often make when they say that religion does more harm than good is they'll say, well, you know, for centuries, the European powers exploited countries in Africa and Asia and South America, and they, they just basically looted them for all their gold and their minerals, and they mistreated the people and enslaved them. And the missionaries were part of that. The missionaries were sent by these colonial governments to mistreat the people. Is that true? Well, it's absolutely true that colonialism was, by and large, a great evil, perpetrated by people who had racially backward ideas. A lot of atrocities took place. We have a lot to be ashamed of as, as European descendants in that regard. But what about the missionaries? Interestingly, there was a sociologist, Robert Woodbury, who did a study on this. For 14 years, he studied the impact of mission work in the world. In 2012, he wrote a paper, and the title of it was The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And here's, here's the thesis statement of that paper. So basically what he did was he studied all the countries of the world. He said, what can, how can you tell which countries we're going to develop into nations that are strong, stable democracies and healthy in every way? And here's what he came up with. Areas where Protestant missionaries had significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. So put that in non-academic terms. If you want to make sure that the country you live in is strong and stable and has a non-corrupt government and has a good economy and where people of all kinds are treated well, the best possible thing you can do is get in a time machine and go back 200 years and send a Protestant missionary to that country. Because as he looked at all other factors, that was the only thing that all the strong and stable countries had in common. Interestingly, too, it was conversionary Protestant missionaries. In other words, they weren't just people who went over and did medical work and relief work. They did those things too, but they went for the purpose of leading people to Christ. Now, have Christians sometimes been guilty of some pretty ignorant ideas? Absolutely. I bet there's people in this room who, if we were honest, could stand up and say, yeah, there was a time when I thought that way. Have we, have we historically been known at times to twist Scripture to make it sound like it agreed with our views? Yeah. That doesn't make the Scriptures wrong. It just makes us wrong. Because when you read God's Word, 
when you read it as it was originally written, not trying to read into it your own perspective, what you come up with is a book, of the, is a book uh, above all others that sets people free. It leads us to truly love our neighbor. It makes people full of joy and peace and love. And you might say to me, well, but I know irreligious people who are way more kind and moral than any Christian I've ever met. And I'd say, that doesn't surprise me. I've spent most of my adult life in the Houston area. Uh, moved here, moved, in, moved to Houston when I was 18. Aside from about six years or so, it's been in this area. And one of the benefits of living in this area is I've gotten to know all kinds of people, people I wouldn't have met in Yoakum, I'll tell you that much. I've met Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and people who don't have an opinion about God either way. And the truth is, some of them are very, very compelling people. Some of them I count as good friends. Most of them were delightful. Some of them, uh, a few of them showed me things about life that I wouldn't have known otherwise. They've taught me things about self-discipline, about, about compassion, about courage. And, and while most Christians I've known, I, I spend most of my time around Christians in what I do for a living, and they're wonderful people, there's a few there's a few. I, uh, it just takes a lot of grace to know. You know what I mean? I, I, I just shake my head. There are some people who can be in church their whole lives and just as mean as snakes. I don't get it. I, I just, you know, it's just a bad day when they walk into the room. And that doesn't hurt my faith. You know why? Because the Bible does not present Christianity as a moral improvement program. It doesn't say that the church is the place where all the good people gather. It doesn't say that the church is the club where the people who've got it all together get together and talk about the world. Instead, it says that Jesus takes anyone. The church is the place for the people who are messed up and know it. Because Jesus takes anyone. He takes addicts, he takes abusers, he takes people with anger management problems and the sexually promiscuous, hypocrites, gossips, liars, bad husbands, bad parents, rebellious kids, murderers on death row, and even people who root for that football team I hate. <laughs> yes, even them. And the truth is, what Christianity really is is a great renovation project. If you've ever been in a building that was under renovation, you know it can look like a disaster. Looks like somebody went through there with a gang of teenagers holding sledgehammers and just let them go to town. And if you don't know there's a plan, you might think this is going really badly. And every one of us, once the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, we're under renovation. So think about this for a moment. Think about two people who were born around the same time, and one of them, let's call her Ella, Ella the Elegant, how about that? She's born into a, a, a home where, with parents who are happily married. She goes to good schools. She's taught to be kind and charitable and compassionate. She learns how to make socially responsible choices and how to do what leads to flourishing for her and everyone around her. Follows the rules, is nice to others. And then there's another woman born around the same time. Let's call her Patty the Pistol. Patty, Patty's mom is a heroin addict. Her dad is not in the picture. She grows up 
basically fending for herself. She learns early on to be very cold and cynical so she doesn't easily get hurt. She learns how to intimidate people and manipulate people. She learns how to use her body to control men. Now, I want you to imagine one day Patty learns that this guy, Jesus, who she's heard about before, learns that he actually created her and loves her and loves her enough that he died for her sins and and wants to transform her and give her a new life. And she believes it. And she prays and asks him to be her Lord and Savior and starts going to church. Now, imagine meeting both of these women separately a few years down the road. You shouldn't be surprised if Ella is a very, very nice person to be around, someone who would gladly pick up your check at lunch, interesting conversationalist, cares about the world, just a nice person. Whereas Patty, she's still pretty hard to get along with. She has a hard time being gracious, forgiving to people who hurt her, has a hard time controlling her tongue if, you're, if you make her mad. You might find it that this non-Christian over here is much more pleasant to be with than this professing believer in Jesus. And yet, I would say to you that if Patty follows the Holy Spirit, continues to invest her life in Jesus Christ and let the Spirit guide her, in a few years, you'll come back and she'll be almost unrecognizable. And there's a day coming, the Bible promises, when that woman is going to look just like Jesus. She's going to be just as gracious. She's going to be just as kind. She's going to be just as forgiving. She's going to be just as selfless. She's going to be just as loving and just as full of joy. But she's not there yet. That's that's what the Bible says. And, And after I say all this, you might say to me, well, then what is the Christian message exactly? Because I always thought it was that if you believe that Jesus was God and if you join a church and you go every Sunday and you follow the Ten Commandments and all those other rules, then you'll go to heaven when you die. And I'll say, I'm so glad you asked. Because that's really not the Christian message. Christian message is called the gospel. And that word actually means good news. See, Christianity isn't good advice. It's not, here's some rules to follow and some steps to get you to where you want to be. It's not, here's how you impress God or here's how you go to heaven when you die. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has already done for you. And it basically breaks down into two steps. One, we're all broken. We're all broken deep down inside. Even Ella, the elegant, even though she's so refined and she's got it all together, outwardly, Inwardly, she's just as broken as me and you. There's a brokenness at the heart of every human being that can't be repaired. And that's why nothing, not success, not fame, not power, wealth, marriage, sex, pleasure-seeking, raising kids, doing good deeds, even being overtly religious, nothing can permanently fix the brokenness inside of us. Nothing can fully satisfy us. We, we just bounce from God to God, from lover to lover, from interest to interest, from hope to hope. We reach mountaintops only to learn that it didn't really satisfy like we thought it would. But here's the good part of the good news. The God who made us in His own image rather than looking down at us and and seeing us as some kind of project that went wrong. He decided to come on a rescue mission. He became a man named Jesus of Nazareth, whose whole purpose in life 
was not to be an example, not to be a teacher, not even to be a miracle worker. His whole mission in life was to take all of our brokenness upon himself. He became broken for us so that we could have his wholeness. He became sin so we could be righteous. He became death so we could have life. It's the greatest trade in human history. From the perspective of heaven, it's the worst trade that's ever happened. But it was for us. And so you ask me, does religion do more harm than good? And I would say it's a mixed bag. Certainly, I think on balance, I may be prejudiced, but I think Christianity has done more good in the world than the evil it's caused. But you may disagree. Here's what I know. Here's what I would die before I disagreed with. Religion is a mixed bag, but Jesus did the ultimate good. The ultimate good. And He someday will redeem this entire world. Every molecule, every atom, every grasshopper and every butterfly and every human and who trusts in Him. Every single part will point to Him in glory. So the real question is not about First Baptist Church or Baptists in particular or Pentecostals or Catholics or Methodists or whoever you want to name. The real question is, who was Jesus? What did He do for you? And that's the question you need to be exploring. Will His people let you down? Absolutely. Me most of all. But who was He? And here's what I think you'll find if you really explore that question. Here's what I think just about everyone in this room would stand up and and agree with me on and would say it in their own words. When you invite Him to take control of your life, that is when you know life for the very first time. That's the decision you never regret. That's the decision that leads to the life you've always dreamed of.